Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. Today I'm bringing to you Professor Abby Smith-Ryan from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Uh, we have a really, I think, important discussion about women in science and also female exercise physiology. Uh, the woman in science part was, you know, really brought to my attention. When I started the podcast, several people pointed out, and I was already aware that the first six um, people I had on were males, and it's like, we're the, we're the woman. So it was really good to try and think about, you know, all the different factors that, that, that are affecting women in science, and indeed how that may, you know, end up affecting my little podcast here. So we discussed a lot of things such as, you know, obvious things we tend to think about that, you know, Women tend to spend more time with childcare and housework at home, um, even if they have a supportive partner. But also other things such as invisible labour, the effect that the pandemic has had, especially on women, things that men don't have to think about, such as you know their appearance. You know, if you're ambitious uh, with a male, that's great. You're you're showing leadership. If you're a female, you know possibly people might think you've been bossy or something. Our females tend to do more service work, and then we discussed you know possible ways to try and redress this imbalance. Abby was really great, um, you know, really pleasant person to deal with. She didn't look at me as like a, 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 a middle-aged white dinosaur, um, which I felt like sometimes uh, it was a really pleasant chat. And then we switched to Abby's main research focus, which is uh, female exercise physiology. We talked about sex differences and, you know, the fact that often you're not wanting to necessarily look at sex differences, but just look at, wanting to look at female exercise physiology per se. The importance of considering female participants carefully in terms of selection criteria, but also trying to reduce barriers to participation. And we compared and contrasted exercise and nutrition recommendations for males and females. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Abby, how are you? I'm great, thank, uh, thanks. How are you this morning, this evening? This evening, it's this evening for me and this morning for you. Um, yeah, okay. So today we're going to talk about women in science, and if we have time, we'll talk about, you know, uh, female exercise physiology, which you've done a lot of work on. Um, but first of all, I was just wondering, how did you even get into the field? How did you start as an academic? Yeah, well, and first, let me say thanks for having me on and, and reaching out uh, amongst all your experts. I don't feel quite qualified to be here, but we're going to soak up the time. Uh, and so I think I fell, in, I mean, I fell in love with research when I was much younger, actually in college and university, as you all call it. Um, yeah. I was a collegiate runner and had uh, many injuries and um, really began to understand it wasn't just about the training, it was also about the nutrition. Um, and I really loved this idea that you could ask a question and answer it. And so from there, I um, I personally went straight from um, college or university to my master's to my PhD and then directly into a tenure track faculty job, which is not always um, now in our field, you know, postdocs are a little bit more common. When I, I came out, they weren't quite as common, uh, but our field is adapting. And so um, here I am. Well, I think you've done very well. I mean, uh, I think you've worked out how to, how to uh, do the tenure track. You just turned, you just became a professor, I saw. I did, um, yes. Yes. So actually, you know, we're going to talk about women in science. So you're a success story. But, um, you know, we're going to talk about the all the different sort of challenges. And I have to say, you know, when I when I reached out to you, we, we talked about this. I hadn't really thought through it all, to be honest. And, you know, it has been a thing, though, because um, I don't know if you saw, but when I first started the podcast, the first three were, were males. And then I sent a, a tweet out saying the next three, and they happen to be males as well. And then someone said, where are all the females? Is there no females in, 
an exercise science. And, you know, even though I did actually have a few lined up that the person hadn't seen, it's true. I mean, I, I've had, um, you know, trouble um, lining up females. And it's looking like, you know, the first 12 podcasts will be like two, now you, three females. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's made me think. And, you know, I really do want to sort of balance things up. And, you know, you've, you've um, had some thoughts about that. So uh, what do you, actually, before we go too far, I wanted to clarify that, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, woman in science. We're talking about biological females. Yeah, exactly. But that, is that, yeah. that's more later on, though, with the, yeah. Well, when you yeah. say women, um, but, you know, I mean, I think the other thing is that I feel like your response you've done you've you can tell that you've clearly tried to get a mix and balance of men and women but you've also recognized that there's a whole lot more men that are in full professors that have made a, a large scientific impact which I think is an, a really important point and yeah. kudos to you for saying like hey let's talk about maybe why uh so I, I mean I think that is awesome yeah, well, it has been a bit of an old boys club so far, but, um, you know, it would be great to try and balance this up. But, you know, there are um, probably, you know, it, it is a situation where if you look at the who's who of exercise science, which is what I'm trying to get on here, they do tend to be, on average, white males, you know, my age. <laughs> mm -hmm. So... Well, I mean, I think that's good to recognize, which you have. Uh, there's also some incredible women. And I, the way I look at it is all these these men that you have had, they, like they've impacted my career and I've learned a lot from them and that we should embrace that. At the same yeah. time, can we ask the question of how do we get more women? Where are the women? Maybe why aren't there more? Um, and so I think that's great that we're having that conversation. Exactly, yeah. And I, and I think... I. You know, straight up, I'm going to say I hadn't really thought through it all. Some of the things I had, you know, I, I sent an email to you were, you know, obviously tending to be more likely to be doing like housework and home duties, looking after kids and things like that, you know, which is true. And I, I guess we'll get to the fact that it's probably become even more so during the pandemic, and, you know, and what a disaster that can be for, for females going forward. But, um, you know, why don't we just elaborate on that a bit more and some of the things that you, you know, you brought up, which I hadn't actually thought of. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciated your email because it, it really showed, like, often we're not having these conversations. And so I think the things that you mentioned, like, why aren't women either in a higher level or why aren't they coming on the podcast? And yeah, I, I'm sure housework and home life uh, which women do tend to participate more in. That's part of it. But I think it allowed us to, and allows us to have this conversation of what are the other things that maybe don't come to mind? And there are a lot of um, systemic and institutional things in academia, in my opinion, that do make it harder for women, um, which I think there are more women coming to the top, uh, but it, it's slower and it, it does, it is more challenging. And so, I mean, those are some of the things I, I threw out, like just at work, um, how we're wired, some of our own um, things as women. Happy to chat through that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I saw that um, they were saying, you know, that, that obviously in science, um, there is more males and, and actually the higher you go up, the, the, the more and more males there are. So that's, you know, that's, that's not good. Um, 
we, well, yeah. And I, I mean, this is, again, I like to say this is my opinion and experience. And, and I do know that some of it, it is not just me alone, you know, based on conversations with other women. But I think our field and academia really breeds this. It's competitive. It breeds this like, well, if you get a grant, then I can't get the grant. Where I view it as, okay, well, if you get a grant, that's great. There's still money. Like my science is slightly different. And I think um, in the older generation, like the way our field was established, it very much, um, it's more collaborative now, but it's that mindset of competition and uh, which breeds insecurities. And so I think um, women have an insecure, when we take our insecurities, we take them inside and we have a lot of self-doubt and imposter syndrome where a lot of times men turn it around and are more, um, they show their insecurities by being competitive and um, maybe, you know, not as collaborative or supportive, not in all cases. So I think there's some of that that goes through. And so women tend to just trickle out and men to, tend to, to push on um, in some respect. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, just thinking about back at the home, because I'm still sort of stuck at that level, and then we think about at work, um, having kids, right? So obviously, that's the, the, the sort of the, the, you know, the cliche that, you know, some people, are, oh, no, woman should be, hopefully, we're moving away from that, you know, that, oh, woman should be in the home, looking have the kids. But in reality, that is still what happens, right? It, you know, to a, on average, right? So obviously, you can, you can have different situations. So I read that, you know, after having kids in the United States, you know, 43% of women and 23% of men actually leave their full-time jobs. So, you know, that's that's a huge figure and it, it is affecting the females more. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, one of the things I mentioned ahead of time is, um, you know, like I know as a young female, I didn't see many women uh, having children and still being research active and, you know, continuing to do this position. And I had amazing male mentors, but that wasn't a conversation that I could necessarily have with a, a male mentor of how do I have kids and continue yeah. to be good and to progress. And so I think some of it comes about it not being a taboo subject. Cause as a woman, it left me with this idea of if I want kids, can I do it? Can I continue to meet the needs that I need or that I have and the, you know, the expectations I have and be a good mom? How does that look? I didn't have a lot of, I didn't know what that looked like. There was not a lot of um, mentors in that capacity. And there, there weren't um, men that were having that conversation with me about how it would look. Um, and, and even, you know, I remember, uh, like, I remember having a miscarriage. That's not something you talked about, but I had to still go to work and pretend like I was fine. And so I think this conversation of recognizing that if you want to have a family, it's part of you. And I mean, before we jumped on here, you told me, um, you mentioned to a male colleague, like, it's okay to go home. You should be at home with your family. Um, having the conversation about, okay, yes, work is important and you have to get your work done, but it's also not who you are or your life. Like family is also important. Mm -hmm. And I think having some of those conversations and having more women in higher roles of how it could look is really important. Sometimes, you know, it's finding someone who you wanna be like and emulating some of those aspects. Like how do you have kids 
and still juggle grants and papers. Um, I think those are the conversations that are not being had. And even like, it's really hard. Um, but let's talk about why it's hard and how do we make it easier opposed to just let's not talk about it at all. You're on leave. You just had a baby, like figure it out, you know? Well, can I, I mean, seeing as we've got you here and you are doing these things then you know, maybe some people that are watching are wondering how you do do that. So, you know, you said you have two kids, you've got tons of papers, grants, whatever. How, how do you actually do it? Do you have to work like crazy? Or? You know, I don't, I wouldn't say I do it very well. And I've, um, I've had a lot of challenges. And so I think to me, it's about making it easier behind me. And, you know, so one thing actually young women ask me now is like, well, what advice do you have? And, and I say, don't do it like me. I am at this point, I'm burnt out and I'm tired. Um, and I, I probably did more than I needed to, but nobody said like I was under this um, assumption that I did need to do all that. That was kind of the messaging when it turns out um, like if you are passionate about what you're doing and you do what you want to do, like there's a place for you. It doesn't necessarily have to be at an R1 institution. Like, so um, to me, the biggest thing is finding something you really love and putting your time and effort into those priorities. And so, um, yes, I work a lot of hours. Uh, part of why I went directly through from my PhD to a job um, two kids is because I wanted to put in all the hours up front and have the ability to have children. Um, and I want, I'm going to say back off a little bit, but it changes how you, how you work, you know? And so mm -hmm. I put in hours before they go to bed or, you know, before they wake up and after they go to bed so that when they are awake and I have them, they are all mine, you know? And so it's just shuffling and figuring out when you work in time management. Time efficiency, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah and no one's you know like sometimes I do it really poorly um so and you have to have a support team like you know I have a great group of students and research team and um my husband's in academia so uh, just trying to I don't know yeah I don't have all the answers but maybe after some few few more years I'll I'll mm -hmm. I'll have more you know enlightenment so one thing I read was how you know the pandemic was was so bad and it's affecting probably woman again more because, you know, I know we, we're going to talk about the fact that it's not just in the home, but, you know, it's true that male, uh, females on average do more, more housework, more looking after the kids, et cetera. And I even read something that um, said uh, that, that sometimes now we're getting paternity leave. I don't know if you've got paternity leave in the US, but, but it actually said that, that, that what tends to happen is when male academics go on paternity leave, they go, oh, this is like a sabbatical. I'm going to do some, get some work done. And, and females obviously are, are going to be tending to look after the kid. So, um, yeah, so just, just if you thought about, and how did you manage during the pandemic? I'm, I'm sure you thought about that, you know, with, with schools, uh, schools closed or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think so. There's this term that's come up in the literature called invisible labor. And so the invisible labor is, you know, making sure that there's toilet paper around, like all the little things that uh, men and women are wired differently. And so my brain doesn't shut off. And so I think it's really recognizing that I have this at home to do list, like make sure my kids clothes fit and make sure that we have, you know, Cheerios for breakfast. Um, and, and so there's this mental load at home on top of my work to do list. And so I think it's really important to recognize like just the mental load of women are different. 
and with the pandemic, you know, I think it hit everyone, but yes, I think on the residual side effect, there's a lot of data that's showing that there are um, way fewer women that are publishing. It's very much hit the ability to, you know, publish papers and do write grants. And, um, you know, I think it goes back to that mental load and that, uh, you know, caretaking um, tasks that we have. Even if you have an incredible significant other, it just men and women are wired differently. And so, um, yeah, the toll is different. Sure, uh, I was just going to say, I was, I was sort of smiling a bit while you were talking. You might have been wondering why, but it's um, my, my wife vacuums like probably every four or five days. And I'm like, what? you don't need to vacuum that much. And then anyway, so she's, I, I mentioned to you, she's in the States for a couple of months. She's actually American. And I'm back here just with a dog. Anyway, I, I, my daughter borrowed the vacuum cleaner and I was like, I need the vacuum cleaner back. I need to clean my wife, my wife wrote. I hate to think how messy it was before I thought about vacuuming. <laughs> so for me to say, I need the vacuum, she's like, oh, crap. Must have been really bad. Two and a half, two and a half weeks, I think it was. <laughs> yes, yes. But it, it, that's a perfect example of it, it takes up mental space and then you throw in like, all. it's just, I think it's a great point that people don't think about. Like, why am I overwhelmed? Not necessarily because of all the work things, but then I worry about, you know, okay, we're still going back to school with COVID and my kids, plus all the home things. So it's just, it's all the little things that women put on themselves or how we're wired that it makes the job very different. Yeah, thinking about their birthdays coming up, my wife would be like, oh, there's a sale on, so she'll be buying something in May for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to be stereotyped, but talking for myself, I don't think like that. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, the pandemic. So this is really pretty serious. You know, we're kind of joking around a bit. But, you know, I saw that, you know, more males are actually publishing and less females are publishing during the pandemic. So that, that's just a disaster, right? It's, it's, there was, they're already on the back foot. And, you know, this could be, you know, many years before you know assuming the pandemic actually ends and when you go back to normal you know you're already on the back foot and it's going to be worse right well yeah and I I mean I I think everyone is doing the best they could uh but I know like here uh in the U.S. and in my you know current academic position we just carried along like everything was the same like you still you know like everything was that was virtual but we still had all of the same to do's and all of these expectations and it, it wasn't, you know? And so I think it, it, I think even having this conversation or how do we get, how do we actually work together to help build that gap? And just one example on the reverse end of the publishing is the number of review requests I get per day from journals, multiple. Um, Like, so I get at least three, request at least three a day, at least three every other day to review a paper. And as a woman, I'm thinking like, I'm a helper, like we're designed, we want to, I that. Um, no, I shouldn't because I need to write my own papers. So it's really this juggle of, of how do we bridge this gap and recognizing that, yes, we need, there is a gap and we're even further behind. How do we take, you know, have the conversation and, and help move that forward? Okay, so we've talked about a few bits and pieces, a lot of, around the home and things. And you've talked about some of the pressures with work. What are some of the other things you've thought about? Well, one thing that I would love to talk about that never, it's kind of this elephant in the room, I think usually is 
um, the appearance of women. And as a woman, it becomes such a, a big, it's a way bigger um, impact on me than it would be on you. And, and nobody really recognizes or they care not to. And just an example that I always think about is like when I started in the field, I was very young. Like many of my students were similar in age and to be respected, I needed to look a certain way or in exercise physiology, you know, like women have a much bigger standard of to look a certain way. Um, and one specific example I always give is every semester on teaching evaluations, I get comments about my clothing, whereas mm -hmm. my male colleagues have never gotten that. It just is again, not a huge stress, but one more thing I have to think about is how I present myself and what clothing do I wear? Not only like it should be about my science, not about how I look. Yeah, I mean, that's an absolute, that's pervasive throughout, you know, you're, you're having to deal with that. But we have a classic, people probably don't know, but we had a prime minister here, which is like the president, but uh, Julia Gillard. Mm -hmm. And you know, she had all these comments all the time about, you know, people aren't talking about the president or the prime minister, the male, about what they're wearing or whatever. But she even got this thing like, oh, she's a barren woman, which she had no kids, you know. And then there was all this talk about her, her, you know, her, partner and you know was he masculine enough or whatever it's just ridiculous so the things you wouldn't have to think about so yeah, no one's commented about my dress my, my, how I dress or anything in my you know how, what clothes I wear but you've you've had that like consistently like oh yes all the time and um or and even comments uh they're not meant to be malicious but comments about my body or you know oh you have opportunities based on the way you look um, and then I think you brought up another really important point that takes, I know, mental load for me is how I, how I, um, how I act and how I write. So if I um, write an email and I don't have enough exclamation points or it's written in a certain way, then I'm considered a bitch. But if a man was to write that, they would be considered a leader and a boss. Oh. And so there's a lot of mental load that goes into um um, especially as I, as I progress in my career and I'm, you know, higher on the rung, whatever that means is, you know, the way I say things and write things are, is taken. I have to be nice and I have, I can't be direct because then I'm considered differently. Whereas as a male does it, it, it they're, they're a leader and they have good qualities. And so, um, you know, nobody's talking about that. And I think it's a really important thing. Yes, yeah, so if you if you want to if you're ambitious and you want to do well and you want to move up to department head or dean or whatever, if you're a male, that's considered just you know normal. Like if you're not, then you know what's wrong with you. But if you're a female, sometimes it's is it almost like oh you're a bit aggressive or you're trying to get ahead of whatever. That there's this extra sort of layer of uh, consideration, I guess. That's mm -hmm. you're trying too hard. Yeah, you're you're bossy, um, and I know for me uh, my. Um, my time, it's very much, I wouldn't say changed me for who I am, but it has, it, 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 I've had to have, be very introspective about my personality and how I present myself and how I, um, you know, write my, my emails and interact with my male colleagues. Yeah, no, no, no emails in all caps. That, that <laughs> me out once. What? I had no idea because you know how you can have like an email and you want to respond just by, you know, they say something and you write underneath. I, mm -hmm. I did it in all caps because just so it would stand out. 
and they were like, what's the old caps, dude? You know, like, like I was aggressive or something, but yeah. But Can you imagine you, if I did that? You, right? you did that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So another thing that um, I, you actually mentioned, I saw written up somewhere as well, is, is the fact that, that females tend to do more service work in universities. Is that, that's also going to be cutting in. And I think you, you also touched on, you know, you tend to want to be nice and say yes to things. So it probably overlaps, you yeah? know? Yeah, and I and I I mean I love service. That's uh, but I would also say that's partly because I'm a woman. Like women are designed, not all women, but many women are designed. There's research to support that we're designed to help others, and so um, I think it's two things. Uh, a lot of times, women are asked more to be in a service role to help others. And many of us have a hard time saying no. And, you know, I think there's a big movement here, like just say no, but how do you say no to your boss, you know, like, or, or picking which things you can say no to. And I think um, a specific example I have, um, and so like when I had children, uh, I, I got, um, I saw very much a downturn in invitations to give talks and could, to go do things in, academically. and. I think people were trying to, the perception from most men in the field are like, oh, she's too busy or she wouldn't want to now that she's had children. And so after children, um, you know, I didn't feel that I could say no, because then those opportunities would not come back up. So it was almost saying like, you have to say yes, so that people, you know, that you can, if that's a, something that you want, you have to say yes, so that you can work your way back up. Um, and then, you know, there are a lot of service things and we want to help the students and the university and whatever it may be. And so I think it's a mix of how we're wired, but then also how many times are we being asked um, things? Now, I'm glad to say that you were one of the ones that said yes to my podcast. So yeah, just thinking about, okay, so being a bit self-centered here, but with the podcast, so this is how I sort mm -hmm. of started thinking about this, you know, so, so then, you know, I guess I'm trying to think, you know, should I, or I don't know if you know, should is the right word, not meant to say should, but now one option is I try and make it 50-50, yeah, 50 male, 50 female. But then, you know, as we said, you know, the people that are, are the sort of who's who in the area do tend to be more male, right? But, but you know, I do want to sort of redress it a little bit. So, you know, I'm just wondering, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm thinking maybe I should, you know, if there's, it's kind of like the affirmative action thing, you know, if it's if this too similar and then if the, the female was just not slightly, you know, less credentialed, I'm more than happy to go, you know, with the female because I want to sort of be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Well, yeah, I mean, the first, yeah, the first thing that comes to mind, though, is like, I never want an opportunity just because I'm a woman. <laughs> You know, like, I hope that you asked me based on my scientific credentials and not just yeah, because yeah. I'm a woman. Yeah. Um, but but then I think at the same time, I, I do think you're right. Like, uh, if we just take the publishing and the funding, you know, it it is harder for women to juggle all of that along with everything else. And so, you know, you are seeing more men. And so one would thing would be to do is to say, well, how are you judging who's the who, who's who? And, you know, I think you're using criteria like an H index. Um, but 
can you also look at, um, you know, what are some key papers that have higher citations? Maybe they don't have as many, but they've had some really significant contributions to a specific area of science. Or like one thing that I think would be really interesting, like we're not talking about science yet here. <coughs> yeah, we're not talking about science yet here, any of the work I've done, but just about my experience experience and women, um, you know, what about a woman in an administrative position or that is at the top that maybe isn't doing as much research and their H index isn't as high, but they are, a who, they're having impacts in other ways. So maybe I, I, redefining that criteria. Yeah. One thing I had thought about was, was also, you know, at one stage someone said, oh, I've got some really good early career researchers that, that would be, you know, fit the bill. And I was thinking like, oh, but I want to be who's who. I want to be the, you know, the absolute. If you think of respiration during exercise, you think it's Jerry Dempsey. You're going to get Jerry Dempsey. But, you know, that's a fair point because especially as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, the higher up you get, the less females there are. You know, it's it's, it's actually a way of trying to redress that a bit. Is If you have early career researchers that are doing really well, then, you know, <laughs> if they get sort of opportunities like like this, I'm not saying this is that, you, know, you, know, you know, this podcast is going to make their career. But, you know, if they get opportunities with conferences and, you know, getting on podcasts and whatever else, then you know, that does give them a chance to, to, to get higher up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I, I kind of chuckled when you sent me the email about, you know, why maybe more women weren't participating. And I, I think, to me, one of my core values is education and translation. And I feel like opportunities like this allow me to talk about science in a way that more people will hear it. Um, but honestly, if you were to ask me in my younger career, I might think of why would I spend this time talking to podcasts when I really need to be writing a paper to be in the who's who. And so I think it's also, you know, just recognizing of where those values are or, you know, I had to make sure my kids were somewhere so that I did have the time to be able to do it. So it's really just that idea of, of shuffling. Um, we are all very busy. And there's always also multifactorial. You mm -hmm. know, one person's reason for wanting to come on and not coming on yep. is the same. The one thing I was thinking was my little, you know, N equals one sort of study here, looking at people going on the podcast, was not only am I having less people saying yes to it, but the ones that do say yes, they say, oh, I'm really busy. Can I do it in September, October, November, whatever? So that that's given me a feel that, that they are, you know, my feeling you know, without even thinking about that much, was, you know, to get to the point of being a who's who, you've got to be more busy as a female than a male. And that's just the way it comes across with, with my, little, my little study here. Because Which is sad, though, right? And I think I love how thing. you even brought it up earlier, too. Like, busyness shouldn't be a badge of honour. You know, we, we should be talking more about work-life balance. I don't think that exists. But, you know, like, yes, we're all busy, but it's also where you prioritize. Where do you want to spend your time? Like, should I be doing other things right now? Sure. But to me, it, I think this is a very important conversation. And my hope is that it will, you know, the, the however many people listen, it may, you know, get a little bit more insight uh, to, to how we might do it better. Oh, well, I'm hoping that, you know, this has been an education for me thinking about it. So the Twitter, even though I found the thing on Twitter a bit awkward and it's like, hang on, I already had three people, you know, and whatever. It was actually good because it made it more, you know, brought it more front of mind to me, the importance of it. Made me think about, you know, what are the reasons more and, you know, having you on there now, you know, hopefully, you know, some males will, will watch this as well and, you know, and, and to learn from it. Now, I know the pandemic has just thrown, you know, a mess with everything. 
But I was going to say, do you think things are actually improving? But, you know, the, before the pandemic, I guess with the pandemic, it's, it's got worse. But do you think, you know, in terms of women in science, you know, I, I don't know the data, are things actually getting better? Like, you know, pay gaps and amount of people that are in senior positions in universities and things, do you know? That's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that we're at a really um, good time and that more conversations are being had about not only women, but, you know, our, our field is is not diverse, you know, just we're, we're our, in general, exercise physiology is mostly white individuals. Um, and so I think that there's a lot more conversation. And I know here in the US, you know, there's a push for, you know, trying to Im improve that. So I think the conversation is there, but I don't think um, we've made a lot of strides yet. But I think talking about it in recognition is the very first step. Yes. All right. Now, I think this is a good time to start thinking about your your research. And, um, you know, and, and this this has been a, definitely a change over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so where, you know, there's much more thought about um, having, you know, females involved. And I have to say, as I said to you before we started, you know, I just showed my male centric thing so badly. So when we were talking about what we talk about, um, you know, I assume you said you want you, you could talk about female exercise physiology and me being like a knucklehead. I was thinking, oh, sex differences, right? Which which is just, you know, I, I'm happy enough to say that it's ridiculous. So because then I started thinking about it. It was actually before I, I, I got your feedback and I thought, hang on a minute. I'm thinking sex, you know, female physiology is comparing females to males. And that is just so wrong because, you know, you don't think if there's a study in males, you don't think, oh, they're doing that study in males so that they, you know, there's a comparison to females. But if there's a study in females, you know, I'm thinking, oh, well, they, they, they I'm assuming they're doing that so they compare it to, to males, right? I mean, obvious things like, you know, menarche and, and, and amenorrhea and, you know, menopause or whatever, obviously not. But other things I would tend to think, you know, I'm throwing myself under the bus here, but at least I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I would tend to think you do a study in females and you're wondering what happens in the males, but you, you can just look at the females on their own, obviously. And, and that's, I think, what you've started to do. So maybe if you can elaborate on that more. I mean, I think the the male female like the the sex differences are so important. And I know you mentioned you're going to talk to Dr. Sandra Hunter. Like, there, I think there's um, some great foundational physiology research about where there's some of those differences, uh, you know, lie. Um, I have this interest in this. I mean, really, why are we not including more women? Um, often it it does, you know, like it's it's really this thought of it, it does require more time and money and effort in science and research when, when actually doing research. Um, but there's still, you know, some things we're unsure of. Um, and, you know, now most of the time we're including just normal menstruating women, when we know that the majority of women are using some form of hormonal contraception. And so it, to me, it's more about reducing barriers to allow for a larger group of women to be in the science, like in the research, so we can understand what's happening, so that we can, um, you know, answer more of those questions. And so looking at female physiology of really what's happening across the menstrual cycle, what's happening when you um, have someone that's using some form of hormonal contraception, mm -hmm. 
on these physiological outcomes so that now maybe if you know, just one study we did, if, if we are trying to measure body composition, this is actually a funny, um, I had a study in women, um, we had some men too, and my reviewer's comment was, you cannot use the DEXA in women, it's not valid. And I said, wait a second, there's no data on that. So I'm going to do a study to, to understand, well, how does a female's physiology impact the validity of the DEXA? Because that's a common tool we all use. Um, and, and so we looked in to see, you know, how does, how do measurements change throughout a, a menstrual cycle with the DEXA and turns out they don't. So DEXA is a very valid, non-sensitive or that, it's that not, it's no sense. Right? So if you, if you had some other piece of equipment that you said, oh, this, this equipment does not work in 50% of the population, then that would be the end of the equipment. You know, you can't mm -hmm. just say that this doesn't work in women. I mean. Right. And well, what's the, the rationale behind it? But, you know, like reviewers have a lot of power. So it, it, but to me, it was also like, well, why don't we have that data? Like if this is a common method that we're measuring with, um, we better know that. Yeah. So one thing is, you know, talk about early on, I saying females are on the back foot or women are on the back foot from the start is, you know, textbooks, textbooks all assume, you know, 70 kilogram male. You know, and I, I've even noticed that when I've been doing pracs, we have quite a lot of Asian students here in Melbourne and they'll tend to be shorter, you know, even the males. And mm -hmm. you, know, you say, well, hang on a minute, that doesn't fit them. But, you know, you've got the, the females, you know, that's that's just from the start. The assumption is that you have the male as a reference point, you know, 70 kilogram male, and then you go from there. And, um, you know, one thing I was saying is, you know, we we have this um, thing where we say, oh, it's, it's a bit, too hard, you know, the female studies, because, you know, you've, you've got to control for the menstrual cycle. And then, as you said, if you're on hormonal contraceptives and premenopausal, postmenopausal or whatever, but as I was saying to you before we started, I've done quite a lot of studies in, in rodents, so mice and rats, and we never go, oh, hang on a minute, um, you know, what stage of their menstrual cycle are the rats and mice? And we don't even like worry, quite often you'll just do them, like if you'll do run one on a treadmill and then you know, look at it and then do another one. And it's not even the same time of day, but, you know, with females now we're saying, oh, you know, it's, 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 well, it, I mean, it is complicated, right? That's the mm -hmm. trouble. It is complicated, but, but I guess, what do, what do we do about it? You know, because I mean, part of, I know I'm sort of a, all over the place, but you go, okay, you can do a male and that's pretty much that's steady. And the female, you're going to say, okay, are they premenopausal, postmenopausal? contraceptives, what stage the menstrual cycle. To do a study properly, you should have probably seven groups or something, yeah? Well, yeah, I mean, I, that's, yeah, my, I think there's a couple of things we can do. Um, so one thing that I think is great, so um, Dr. Kirstie Elliott-Sale and her group, they've, there's more, they published this great paper about methodology. What are some key methodology that you want to do to help, you know, to, to characterize your sample, which I think is great. Uh, but in reality, if like we're in the lab trying to do a human-based study, you're right. It, it, I don't have all the time and the resources for every study to do all these things. Um, and so part of my aim is to let's 
help understand what are the key things that we do in different, you know, every study has different levels of funding. Um, and to me, it's really about let's, let's characterize and understand what are like the most important um, with the least amount of resources so that we can start to include more women in all these studies where it's not this huge hurdle. So reducing the barriers to allow us to, okay, at bare minimum, have them track their cycle and in a free app and talk about that. Um, and so it's really more like as we are reviewing papers and writing papers, let's describe the sample. So one thing actually I'll, I'll send out, um, like we, my group has a, a survey that we use, a questionnaire that asks key questions about you know, menstrual cycle and um, a number of these characteristics that you could just uh, simply do a free questionnaire. And then when you're writing the paper, just characterize your sample a little bit more. So we understand where they're at, even if you can't control for it all. Yeah. Um, and then I think the other thing that, that nobody's talking about is the funding. Like we need more funding that's specifically supporting, trying to include more of these female subjects. It costs a little bit more, nothing crazy, but pregnancy tests and ovulation sticks and measures of estrogen and progesterone. And I think there's a lot of traction right now, but what I've seen is there's no money to follow. Like there, it, there does need to be a little bit more support right now so that we can understand what are the key things that we do need to actually implement? Um, and so I, to me, that's where like I my, like when I say female physiology, let's do understand, for example, we know a lot about blood flow and that that differs between males and females and even hydration across the menstrual cycle. You know, so a lot of the times is let's just measure them when they're menst menstruating. And that gives you a very low hormone phase. Um, nothing like, you know, when they're bleeding and when they're not. So it just allows some, a concrete time point of when to measure them. And it doesn't cost a lot. So just trying to help reduce some of those barriers. So when you, um, when you do these studies, if you choose a particular phase, then you do the study. Is, is part of the problem that you can't assume what you get will be the same in the other phases? Is that, that's probably true, right? Um, yeah, I mean, with hormonal fluctuations, depending on the outcome, yes, it could be different if I measure them at different phases of the cycle and I don't account for it. So mm -hmm. it could be if I'm, let's say I'm doing an interval training intervention or a nutrition intervention, and I'm not accounting for those changes, it may be coming from the cycle, hormonal fluctuations and not the intervention itself. Yeah, so just say you want to look at, I don't know, something, stuff I've done before. So like carbohydrate ingestion effects on performance or glycogen resynthesis after exercise or something, um, you know, you would naturally only be able to apply those results you got to that phase that you looked at. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think carbohydrate metabolism is, is the thing we know differs the most when, I mean, fat metabolism, but with exercise and, and females. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I'm a, a pragmatist, like you can't change exercise and nor would you change it in whatever cycle. But understanding, like we know carbohydrate metabolism differs in the high hormone phase. And so understanding, like if you really want to look at my muscle glycogen repletion in a woman, you absolutely would want to know what phase of the cycle or what type of contraception they're using so that you can understand how it might change. Yeah. But then, but then if you've got, just say if you found glycogen resynthesis was Again, this is I'm I'm thinking about sex differences. So yeah. mm -hmm. you were looking at saying, okay, glycogen resynthesis was faster 
in the females than the males, you know, then you'd have to say, okay, but that was during the follicular phase. You'd have to then, someone else would have to look at another phase or, or whatever, right? Um, you know, you can't yeah, and I mean, I think we have some of that data, but I think it helps to understand, though I see it like maybe one step previously would be, do we need different amounts or different um, doses or types of carbohydrate in a female than a male? Um, just bigger picture right now, all of our nutrition and exercise recommendations are the same for females that they are for males. And to me, that's crazy. Like maybe they are the same uh, and maybe, they, but we should at least understand that before, you know, yeah. I think it's um, clear that I'm not an expert on this, but every time pretty much I see a talk or read something that hasn't compared, uh, compared males and females, the sex differences, it's almost always there's something different, <laughs> more often than not. Um, right, but it hasn't trickled down to like even, you know, as I go to start my new semester and teach exercise physiology, there's one sex-based difference chapter, but really all of the foundational information, that's not intertwined as we talk about, you know, cardiac output and muscle fiber differences and stuff or how they adapt. And so I think it's really just why hasn't it trickled down? We know there are differences, but we're still basing all of our baseline physiology on, on males. Yeah, yeah. Just thinking about grant funding we talked about earlier, for a while there, our grant funding, our sort of NIH equivalent, but it's much smaller, the NH and MRC here. Um, you would have a question that would say, are you using males and females? Yeah. I don't know if you have something similar. And if you, if you just were using, but the assumption again was, was it males or was it males and females? It was, I didn't even think it was a box for just females. I could be wrong. But the thing people would say was, are oh, doing males as a proof of concept, you know, if, especially if it's something new, you know, uh, if, if we find an effect of this on that or, you know, this drug or the training or whatever, then we'll go on and look at females. I, I think that's, that it got to the point, you know, thankfully that you couldn't actually do that anymore. That, that was not considered enough because you know why couldn't you make the argument oh we'll look at the females and if it's different we'll go and look at the males you know that doesn't tend to be the way people think yeah. how, how's it going now with NIH how does that sort of go are you expected to look at males and females generally I mean we have a, a similar checkbox of of are yeah. you including women um, and I think it's great and I think there's a better a bigger expectation of including males and females um, but I have a funny story so I look at a lot of um, kind of pre to perimenopausal women, kind of what's happening in the perimenopause. And I had an NIH grant that was submitted and my feedback was, how are you going to recruit these women? These perimenopause, they're not going to participate. They're hard to find. And so I got a ding on that piece, even though we measure them all the time. You would never say that about a male participant. How are you going to recruit them? Like you, you do it. And, and I think I got another comment um, actually from my IRB, which was very fascinating. And they said, one of the, um, the you need to put in there that childcare is a, a detriment or a cost of participation for these women. And I said, you would never say that to a male. Like, why would childcare be a participation? Like, a you know, and so just, I, I think this conversation about it's there. People recognize we need more women, but there's more barriers that our people are placing as we, you know, try to include women as research subjects. 
yeah. Just thinking more about some of your research, um, I saw you've got some reviews on uh, nutritional strategies for females um, or for women. Um, is there anything you know that you want to sort of bring out here that that, that is sort of quite different between um, women and men with their nutritional needs? With yeah, I think exercise. Yeah, I think that I mean this is a good question, um, and it really stems from I don't know if, if you've seen this debate, but in this in this realm, there's this big debate about whether I need to change my nutrition and training across the menstrual cycle. I don't think that we do. It's more about recognizing some of these changes. And with nutrition specifically, uh, you know, I think we definitely need more data, but there are some key things. And, you know, I look at a lot of dietary supplements that could be advantageous for women that maybe they're not taking or they're not considering because it's all based on male data or it's very male centric. And so, I mean, one thing that, that I've studied specifically is something like creatine supplementation, where, you know, all the foundational research is in males that, you know, the goal was to increase performance, but now we're seeing a lot more interesting data that creatine can also impact uh, the brain and uh, impact as women become pregnant and postpartum. Um, recovery. We have a study that's in review looking at the impact of creatine on hydration across the menstrual cycle. So we know that changes and creatine can actually potentially help with fluid retention and hydration, particularly in the luteal phase. So it might be even more important. So some of those things uh, I think uh, are fascinating and some small tweaks that can be important for females. Yeah, so again, I think, did I just, when I asked that question, did I ask compared to males again? Because I think I'm just stuck on that. Did I? I hope um, no, I don't think so. Well, that's yeah. good. Because, yeah, I, I think it's, it's just so clear. I mean, if I've learned anything from our interactions here, or one of the things I learned is to stop thinking of female, in, you know, looking at, at, at women and exercise as how does it compare to males? Because obviously, if you're talking about across the menstrual cycle or, perimenopause or whatever there's, there's no comparison to that there's no just forget that we're just wanting to understand what's happening in the female for its own sake which makes i, I just i can't believe i just sound like such an old fogey i did just turn 60 maybe that's my uh... no i think it's how we're ingrained but i i love that we're having the conversation because it's it to me maybe it's not different than the male and that's fine but we still need to understand well, how does it affect a female? And, you know, to me, we have very little data on perimenopausal women itself. And, I, you know, frankly, I don't really care how it compares to a, a male of someone the same age, because the physiology of the woman is so very different. I want to know how do we help her improve, you know, her health and quality of life based on physiology and nutrition, because we don't know. And it's 2022. And so I think it's just trying to recognize of how do we target that? And maybe it's not different. Maybe my, you know, recommendations are the exact same, but the fact that I'm speaking to her physiology is something that we're not doing. So if everything was actually the same, you could say, okay, so now we'll just go back and we'll just look at women. That's all right. But mm -hmm. people tend to go, if everything was exactly the same in the male and the, and the, and the, and the woman, um, then you'd say, okay, well, we don't have to do the woman anymore. We're just do the males. But if we could make the same argument, you're just, okay, we'll just do women from now on. 
or maybe they are the same. Okay, well then now great. Now I have twice the subject, you know, population. Now I can just include them all. Yeah. Double your pool. Exactly. 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 Yeah. And that to me, a lot of the things that we're doing too is trying to understand that. Um we are looking at a lot of different types of contraception in comparison to eumenorrheic women. Because uh, finding women that are eumenorrheic, not taking the contraception that have no health indi- contraindications is finding a unicorn. And so, you know, it's hard to find those people when reality, do we need to, if you're taking a monophasic birth control, it matches a similar, you know, con- or what about an IUD that's more localized hormone? So we're trying to dial some of that in on some of these outcomes so that then when we go do a larger study, okay, now you don't need to just include eumenorrheic. You can include some of these contraception, contraceptive methods. So you have a much bigger sample pool and we know it won't necessarily negatively impact that physiological outcome that we're trying to measure. Okay, so just out of interest with the IUD, that there's such a small amount of hormone. Does that actually mm-hmm. even get sort of systemic and change sort of physiology? Do we know or? As far as I know, um, it does not. It, uh, the, the tricky part that we see with IUDs is that many women don't menstruate. They don't actually bleed, but they still ovulate. It's, so if we're trying to understand what's happening for, you know, for this baseline research is when do we test them? Um, and so, no, like that would, to me, the, the biggest case would be including eumenorrheic and IUD users, and that would be a good sample pool. But the interesting thing, at least in the U.S., is that most women that have an IUD um, happens post-children. So now you're in a different age group, whereas more of an oral contraceptive is used in a younger group. So it's it's trying to understand some of that so that we can say, okay, here's our criteria. Let's include these these women. Okay. And I know you've done a lot of um, work with body composition. So you, you spoke before about DEXA. Is there anything sort of interesting you want to sort of, you know, get out uh, that you've been finding with the body composition measures? So you, you yeah. Did, uh, certain, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think one takeaway that we kind of already mentioned is that DEXA, it's not the most valid method for composition, but a lot of people think it's the gold standard. It's very not, uh, but it is not sensitive to things like menstrual cycle changes. So it's a very good method to use if you are tracking women, meaning that it won't be impacted by kind of these physiological changes. If you use any um, method of water, so whether that's deuterium or bacterial impedance, uh, which tends to improve the accuracy of DEXA. So we tend to use a modified four compartment model with DEXA plus a water measure so that we understand what's happening. But that water measure becomes very sensitive across the menstrual cycle. So for example, even kind of follicular, like menstruating versus late follicular, which is around, you know, right before ovulation. So day, you know, seven to to 13, there's fluid changes there that impact body composition. And so, you know, as a researcher, I know, let's say I'm trying to understand the impacts of um, fluid distribution or some aspect of body composition, say from an intervention, I'm going to want to make sure that I measure them early follicular at this kind of around the same window. So days zero to seven um, to understand what's actually happening from the intervention and not something that's menstrual cycle or hormone related. 
Okay, well, thanks a lot. It's been really interesting. I've learned learned a lot about uh, women in science and also about your research. So thanks a lot for coming along. Glenn, I just want to thank you for actually having this conversa conversation and uh, for allowing me to, to be a part of it. So thanks. Okay, good. Bye-bye.